0: Hello and welcome to the Impact Alumni Podcast. I'm Paul Clifford and I am joined today on the show by Brian Flavin. Brian is the Director of Government Relations and Institutionally Related Foundations for the Council for the Advancement and Support of Education, which is, as many of you know, our professional organization. Welcome to the show, Brian.
1: Thanks, Paul. Great
0: to be with you again. It, it's great to have you back. Uh, if uh, those of you who follow the podcast will remember, uh, Brian joined us a couple episodes back to talk about the um, about the new regulations uh, regarding the Credit Card Act and how that impacts alumni associations in our. Credit card uh, contracts that we have. And so if you, if you've missed that podcast, you can always visit alumnipodcast.com to go ahead and listen to that show. It was a, a great show about what alumni associations need to do in terms of uh, disclosing and complying with the new legislation uh, with the Credit Card Act. Well, today's Brian's back on the show and we are talking about the charitable solution laws and uh, state regulations for charitable solution and so brian let 's just let 's jump right in in into the topic and talk about why first of all the origin of this why do states have these charitable solicitation laws
1: sure um, well basically what uh, States are and, and when I say states, it's mostly their uh the, the folks who are involved with consumer protection. So in many cases it's the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, or if there's a separate office of consumer protection within a state. Um, they're obviously concerned about protecting the state's residents um, from um, from fraud and abuse and, and one of those abuses that they've they've they're uh in charge of ensuring doesn't happen is charitable fundraising abuse. Um so in many states and in fact it's 39 states and the District of Columbia there are charitable solicitation registration and reporting requirements and so there are what we call charitable solicitation laws in place and really the laws are designed to protect um, as i said protect the state's residents from fraud and abuse in, in charitable fundraising so that's really where the origin uh origin of the law
0: so now that now that these states first how long have these laws been been in place because it seems it seems to me that just the the focus on registration and, and complying with these solicitation laws uh, is only something that i've started to hear about recently
1: sure the, the laws that have actually in most states have been in place for quite a long time um, but the reason that we're starting to see more questions about it, or at least more focus on charitable solic- solicitation, registration, and reporting, is um, the, the introduction or the release of the new um, Internal Revenue Service IRS Form 990 that charitable organizations are, um, such as separate alumni associations that are 51 c 3s are required to file every year with the IRS. Um, on the new form, um, on, uh, on the schedule, I believe it was Schedule G, um, there is a question that asks which states the charitable organization is registered in, and asks you to list the states. So what's happened is a lot of organizations have been uh, most likely complying, at least particularly with the states that they've been lo- that they're located in, probably over the years, but, but may not have known about or paid much attention to the fact that these laws are in existence. Well, now um, with the form, with the introduction of the new form 990. There's been a renewed focus on, okay, we gotta make sure, or let's make sure we're in compliance with these, reg- these solicitation laws so that we can report accurately and clearly on the Form 990 where we're registered. So I think that while the laws have been around for a while, um, it's really this, the, this question of the Form 990 that has gotten people really back to looking at this and thinking about it. The other thing I'll mention is the enforcement of this, uh, of these laws has been very, has is, is almost been non-existent. I, I shouldn't say non-existent. They've been, it hasn't been there hasn't been a high level of enforcement across all states of these laws. Um, so uh, another reason that um, you know one of the reasons for the new form 90 was obviously to get more information out there about what charitable organizations are doing. And one of the things that state AGs can now look at is they can look at the form 990 uh, and see oh there's an organization that's uh, you know that this this institution is not. Is not uh, it says it's not uh, fundraising in our state. Let's double check that, or let's let's verify that, or or they are. Well, let's make sure they're registered. So um, there's there's now again a renewed sense from the form 990 that that making sure that you're complying with these charitable solicitation laws is, uh, or that you're in compliance with the charitable solicitation laws, and that's sure. really where the new focus has come from.
0: Right, and, I, and I'm sure that when you say that it hasn't been enforced, I'm sure the enforcement was probably reactionary. Somebody was doing something that was not above board and then the state probably stepped in and, and you know, saw that they weren't registered and, and then started to enforce that registration on a case by case basis is what I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and and to be fair to the you know to obviously to the uh, attorneys general and, and many of the um, and the regulators of charities in the states, they obviously have you know there there hasn't been a whole lot of state funding going into this into these efforts. Right. Um, and you know it's similar at the federal level. The IRS does not doesn't get a whole lot of funding for exempt organization enforcement. Um, so, uh, it's not, you know, it's not like there hasn't been, a, there haven't been trying, but again, yeah, it's probably been more reactionary just based off of, of reports, maybe media reports that folks have seen, uh, but there hasn't been a high level of enforcement.
0: Yeah, and especially with the explosion of nonprofits, uh, throughout the, not only throughout the world, but especially here in the United States, it's probably received the same funding in terms of enforcement and now has to, um, now has to regulate uh, thousands upon thousands of, Nonprofit corporations that just seem to be springing up every day.
1: Yep, exactly. It, it's it's an increasing burden, and in, in obviously resources, as, as, as probably all of us know, at, at the state level, resources are not uh, are, are tight and budgets are tight. So um, the enforcement uh, the enforcement has not uh, has not been at a high level, but that doesn't mean there haven't been efforts. and, and now with this new form 990, there's more information that the enforcement could definitely increase.
0: Now, Brian, talk about some of the complexities of this issue, because uh, as, as we keep discussing it, it is not a federal law. So these laws are state by state. And so there has to be, at least from from the research that I've done, there's some complexity there because it's not a one size fits all. As you mentioned, it's 39 states plus the District of Columbia that have these laws. And yet you look at them and, and not all the laws are the same. Talk about some of the intricacies and the complexities of this.
1: Well, Paul, you're exactly right. There's no uniform statute that all states have that all states have that have the same definitions that um, that have the same exemptions. Um, it's it's different in every state, um, and uh, that makes it a very very complex process and a time-consuming process for charitable organizations um, such as educational institutions and alumni associations to comply with. So uh, you know their, their definitions vary. Um, obviously, Sometimes the, the the agencies which you're filing these reports with vary. If you claim an ex- even if you go to a state and it looks like your institution or your organization is exempt from the requirements, sometimes you have to even file a form that says you're exempt, or you have to write a letter to the state saying we feel we are exempt because of X. Right. Um, so it, it can be a very time-consuming and complex process, and. There was some effort a few years ago, um, and it it has helped um, to come up with what's known as the unified or uniform registration statement. Um, And this was an uh, an attempt to kind of bring all of uh, the the states that required charitable registration together using one registration form. So if you filled out the one form, you could file it with each state. Right. Um, And that has that the the form is accepted in a number of states. However, what's happened is a lot of attorneys general and secretary of states and the others that enforce these laws have added addendums um, that are state specific. So you really, even if you fill out the uniform form, you don't you don't save a whole lot of time because you have to fill out a state specific addendum or a- answer additional questions um, by for a particular states. So uh, while while the the effort was was definitely uh, has definitely helped, it's it's definitely still a very complex process and you really need to go through each state and look at, the, at, their, at their laws and the, and, the, and the statute and really figure out, okay, does my entity need to register in the state and if we claim an exemption, under what grounds do we claim that exemption?
0: Now. We're, we're you're listening to the Impact Alumni podcast, and we're talking with Brian Flavin. Brian is the director of government relations for the Council for the Advancement and Support of Education, and we're talking about state charitable so- solicitation laws. Now, Brian, if people want to get the, just a, I want I want to be clear here, you not only have to register in the state in which you are incorporated or the state that you're located. But this also this also spills over to any state in which you are soliciting uh, donations from either an individual or a corporate entity in those states.
1: Absolutely. Um, it's definitely not. Obviously, for, in probably most cases, we'd expect that most institutions and charitable organizations have probably registered within their state. Right. And some may think that that's, that's uh, that's compliance because since they're located in that state, they've registered. But, in fact, if you're soliciting funds from residents of other states, and most colleges and universities um, are doing that, um, and most a lot of alumni associations, a lot of uh, institutionally related foundations are also doing that, then you need to make sure you're complying and you're registered in all the states that you're soliciting funds.
0: And so uh, does there are there restrictions or are there – Anyth- is there anything that individual fundraisers have to do to comply with this, or is this just from an organizational perspective, your institution or your organization has to register?
1: It's, it, for fundraisers who work for the institution or the organization, they would be, They would since they're employees of the institution or organization, they, in, if their institution files um, in a particular state, or I should say registers and, then, and, and obviously files, the annual reports in a, in a particular state, they would be covered under that. It's the, at the institution level. However, if you do, and in most cases, most institutions and organizations do, um, hire outside fundraisers or professional solicitors right. um, to to fundraise on their behalf. Um, you have to you have to look at the state law because in many states, those professional fundraisers have to also register on their own, uh, and that the institution. Has to has to be aware of whether that professional fundraiser is registered in the states where they're asking that professional fundraiser to fundraise for them, um, because in many cases, and when what a lot of folks have found, or what a lot of institutions have found, is they've they've registered in a particular state, and then they've gotten a note back from the attorney general or a call saying, hey, we noticed that you put this this uh, this person or this company down as a professional solicitor in our state. You know, they're not registered. Um, so uh it can it can create a, a potential uh, a potential legal issue uh and obviously one of the things that uh, uh besides obviously running through these laws with your legal counsel one of the things that you're going to want to do is make sure that if you're engaged engaging a professional fundraiser solicitor an, an external entity to help you fundraise that you have verified that they are registered in the states where they're fundraising or that they're complying with the law in all of the states
0: I think a good example of that might be I know a number of institutions will outsource their call centers and their their annual fund uh, phoneathon solicitations, uh, and and a lot of times those are actually located in states other than where your institution happens to be. So those companies that you are outsourcing and contracting with also need to be registered.
1: That's that's correct, and and it, again it varies by state. Again there, and I should mention there are 11 states that don't require any charitable registration or reporting, um, and there also are states um, that uh, do not require professional solicitors and fundraisers to to register as well, but there are other states um, and, and, and many states that do, that require both, so you really do have to kind of look through, uh, and it is a tedious process, you have to really examine the, uh, the solicitation laws in the, right. in the 39 states in the District of Columbia just to make sure that you're covered and that you're Who your, 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 the private companies that you're using or the individuals are also registered appropriately.
0: And then there's, there's some states where your, uh, where there are educational exemptions there are some states where uh institutionally related foundations and alumni associations are exempt and so with with all these different categories brian if someone's listening to the podcast where might be a good place for them to go to get all the resources and all the answers to these questions as they look to comply with these charitable solicitation laws
1: well, one of the things that we've put together here with CASE, and we, and we commissioned a, a local D.C. law firm that does a lot of work on this called Webster, Chamberlain, and Bean, um, to pull together a white paper that kind of goes through the exemptions um, that educational institutions and their, uh, and what we call their institutionally-related organizations, such as foundations and alumni associations, um, have in each of the states. And what the what this white paper does is it goes through the states where no registration is required, where registration for all charitable entities is required, including educational institutions, um, and it, then it also goes through um, the states where exemptions, um, where there are exemptions for educational institutions only. And I should mention this is a, a particular should be a particular interest to public colleges and universities because. Um, In many cases, the public college and university may be exempt as the educational institution, but your fundraising is being done by a separate foundation, an institutionally-related foundation that's a separate 501c3, or you have a separate 501c3 alumni association. Even though those, the alumni association and the foundation are obviously affiliated with the institution, um, just because the, the exemption is for the educational institution only in many states. So that means that your, your institutionally related organizations have to register because they're separate 501c3s. Now, there are also a number of states where there's an exemption for the educational institution and also for some of the institutionally related organizations. And there's a listing in the white paper of those states. And then finally, something that may apply to some alumni associations, there are exemptions in particular states for membership organizations. Uh, as long as they only solicit to or solicit from their members. Um, so there may be, there. you know, again, reviewing with legal counsel, you may be able to claim an exemption in some states just based off the fact that alumni associations are membership organizations. But you really do need to kind of go through each of the states. Um, and what's great about the white paper is it not only gives you a listing of which states fall under which category, but then it also it also, the whole back of the white paper is, the actual cites um, all of the actual um, state solicitation laws. It goes state by state through the laws and gives you the language that you can kind of confer with your legal counsel on whether you think um, you need to um, you need to file in a particular state. And remember, even if, if the decision is that you know my organization is exempt, lo- looking at the at the at the law, my organization is exempt. You still need to figure out if you need to file a separate exemption form or, or you need to. To file a letter with the with the AG's office in that particular state saying uh, we, we believe we're exempt because so just because you're exempt doesn't mean you can assume you're exempt you sometimes have to make the case of why you're exempt um, as well and the white paper walks through that as well so I would uh, the white paper is available on the case website um, for uh, for case uh, professional members um, and uh, I would say that's probably the, the, the probably the best resource that you can do to start this process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's www.case.org. And uh the way I found the resource was just going up into the top right-hand corner. There's a search box up there, and I put um, state registration for charitable sol- solicitation in the search box, and it pulled up uh, a number of, of different items. One item, Brian, I noticed, and I know it's, it's too late to register for this, but I know Case always does a really good job of, um, recording and then making uh, recordings of the online speaker series available. Recently, uh, back on May 6th, the uh, Navigating State Charitable Solicitation Laws was part of the online speaker series, and so that's also available for purchase, the recording of that. Is that correct?
1: Yep, that's correct, and in fact, we had the author of the white paper, um, Chip Watkins from Webster Chamberlain Bean, on the call, all, all, along with um, Jennifer Smith, who's at the University of Iowa Foundation, and hand- is their legal counsel there and handles the process, kind of going through some tips and strategies for complying um, with these laws. And so I would, I would encourage anybody who's interested in this. It was a very, uh, very well-done webinar. It goes through a lot, goes into much more detail than, than we have time for today um, into a lot of these issues. And also, there are a lot of questions answered on the call as well, are on the call. And it is available. It, is, it was recorded and is available on the case website.
0: Excellent. Well, I will in the show notes for this podcast I will put a link to the public policy page that has the information about the state registration for charitable solicitation and I will also um link to the conferences and training page uh in case you are interested in downloading the um the recording of the webinar that uh, Brian and I have been talking about. Brian, any any last thoughts about this topic?
1: Well, the only thing, and I've said it a number of times, that I would encourage uh, all the listeners to do is, it, who are at alumni association, a foundation, or educational institution, is obviously to review the laws with your legal counsel. Um, and then one of the things that we, we didn't talk a, a whole lot about, but I think is important, is there's going to be a point where you're going to have to make the decision about whether it makes sense to to handle this, to have to to handle these registration requirements internally or to uh, work with an external. Uh, external company or law firm that to help you kind of go through this process who maybe does it as a, you know, does it for a number of different organizations and knows the, the, the tips and strategies. And uh, I've heard of institutions going both ways. There are a lot of folks who do it internally, a lot do it externally. But that's one thing that you're going to want to think about as you kind of get down to seeing, okay, how many states we have to register in? What do we have to do? When are the filing deadlines? And, of course, the filing deadlines can be all over the place. Um, so uh, it 's one of those decisions that you 're going to want to make as well, um, but other than that, I think we 've covered the main points
0: now Brian, one final question uh, that just you sparked this thought. Um, right now, these are state regulations, but we've seen the federal government get involved in, you know, credit card legislation. We've seen the IRS take a special look over the past year or so at 501c3 nonprofit corporations uh, in terms of how they file their IRS filings. Uh, do you do you anticipate that this uh, ever becoming uniform in the sense that it becomes um, a federal legislation?
1: Well it's interesting because obviously there are pros and cons to that. I think that obviously the pro would be there'd be a uniform statute um, right. and but the con could potentially be you'd have a federal requirement on top of all the state requirements, um, so you'd have to file federally as well right. Now, so. form nine ninety kind of pretty much kind of kind of works and in, in provides that role right now, so I, I can't imagine them adding another layer on to that but uh, but my, my take is that uh, and you know one of the reasons why a uniform Statement has never worked very well. Is obviously the attorneys general in particular states, or the secretary of states and the consumer protection folks in particular states, feel very strongly it's their duty to protect their state their state's residents, and they they know their state's residents best, uh, and that they know exactly what type of information they need. So my take is that this will probably continue to be a state level. Issue um, just because of, of of the fact that the attorney ge- attorneys general and state government really has the enforcement power over this. Um, so I don't foresee any federal um, regulation, or I should say federal, uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, um, trumping of these of these laws. Right. Um, however, um, again, you know, it was federal action, the form 990, and the fact that the IRS redesigned the form 990. Ask this question that led to. Uh, has led to all this focus in the first place. So we obviously need to watch bo- both at the federal and state levels.
0: I'm Paul Clifford. I'm talking with Brian Flavin, uh, CASE's Director of Government Relations and Institutionally Related Foundations. And you're listening to the Impact Alumni Podcast. Well, Brian, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate uh, your expertise and passing some of these tips on to our listeners. It's, uh, I've enjoyed talking to you about this, and I know that um, – I've learned an awful lot about what we need to do as an organization now, so I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to join us today.
1: Thanks, Paul. It's always great to be with you and to be as helpful as we can be.
0: Well, that was great. Uh, I appreciate Brian joining us on the podcast today. And I want to send a special thank you out to uh, Amy Bouchard Brooks at UNLV for suggesting this topic. Uh, it's when listeners suggest topics uh, that they are interested in hearing about that helps us uh, continue to deliver a podcast that is relevant to the needs of alumni professionals around the around the country and around the world. Um, and also helps it to be as, as valuable as possible to you. Uh, our listeners, and so please keep sending your Feedback to the show, uh, you can send us feedback and connect to the show by visiting our website at alumnipodcast.com. You can also check out other episodes of the podcast there. You can send me an email at paul.clifford at alumnipodcast.com. You can follow the show or become a fan on, on Facebook, on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn. Uh, join and get involved in the conversation on one of these social media sites. Send me a tweet on Twitter at, at impactalumni. Thanks for joining us today, and I look forward to talking to you on an upcoming episode of the Impact Alumni Podcast. So long for now.